This is how it starts. The crackle of the police scanner, a shooting close to midnight. Cecilia Mannion is sitting in her idling SUV on Chicago's west side, listening to the police scanner. There aren't a lot of details available right away, but a man was shot in the Little Village neighborhood. That means he's Mannion's responsibility, and she knows where he's headed. I'm on my way to say I'm on Sinai Hospital. Um, I'm going to make a phone call. Before she drives to the hospital, Mannion calls her supervisor. Hey, we got a bona fide shooting on Sir Mac and um, Sawyer. Okay, I'm and argues with her about who is going to take the case. Mannion is supposed to be off today. She was at the same hospital working until about 4 a.m. last night. Her supervisor tells her to leave it for tomorrow. But Mannion isn't hearing it. Bye. Okay, so what's the plan based on... I'm going to go there and see if we get anything. Mannion works for a nonprofit called Enlace. Her title is Victim Advocate. Basically, if you're shot in Little Village, she shows up to try and help, to minimize the harm. She helps families navigate health care, funerals, counseling. She acts as a conduit between victims and cops, talks people out of retaliating, whatever is needed. Mannion gets paid for 40 hours a week. She works basically around the clock. So you can follow me. Okay. okay. Are you, so you're going to have to go left. So I'll be right. My car's right here, so I'll just follow you. Okay. Mount Sinai Hospital is one of the go-to trauma centers for gunshot victims on Chicago's west side. It's where Mannion, who goes by Ceci, spends many of her nights. Tonight, she beats the ambulance to the hospital, stands outside the metal gate waiting, chain-smoking cigarettes, sipping on an iced latte from Dunkin' Donuts. Just one per night, because any more would be too much sugar with her diabetes. She's 50 and not quite five feet tall. Her stature makes it hard to picture her navigating the dangerous spaces in which she works until she starts talking. She is brash and profane, in control of whatever room she is in. Ceci is basically always in black leggings and a black t-shirt, her brown hair in a ponytail, and her long, pointed fingernails painted different colors. While she waits for the ambulance, Ceci hears on her scanner that the paramedics transporting the gunshot victim have asked for police to meet them at the hospital entrance. Ceci says that means the folks in the ambulance are worried about gang members showing up at Mount Sinai. So emotions probably got escalated there, and that's why they asked for backup. Okay. So usually when there's a shooting and you're involved, gang involved, um, their friends come here to the hospital. Yeah, it's horrible. Is it- are they showing up for a good reason, though, to, like, check on their friend, or is it kind of just... You're like, that's bullshit. It's it's just to, yeah. it's just to show, what, force? To show... I Honestly, I don't know what the hell they come for, because I think they annoy more, just like when the ambulance people go to do their job, and then they got all their friends, like, surrounding him. Like, move the fuck out the way. Let these people right. do their job. Right. And then they want to... Yeah, it's annoying. A massive iron fence and gate protects the entrance to the ER. Another metal fence surrounds the parking area where ambulances pull up to the emergency department. Both barriers were put up after shootings outside the hospital. Because a lot of people attack the ambulance. And I think this is the ambulance coming in. Here. 
As the ambulance arrives, the safety fence slides open, and Ceci cranes her neck to see inside. She watches as paramedics wheel the victim into the hospital. He looked alert. He looked up when he was getting out. He looked young Hispanic male, so we'll find out who it is. Ceci's goal is to talk with him and meet his family and offer whatever help they need. But Mount Sinai has gone on lockdown, bracing for a busy night of shootings. That means Ceci will spend her night outside of the tall iron fence. So what I'm doing now is I'm going to wait here at the gate, and we're going to wait for family and friends to come so I can find out who it is. This work that Ceci is doing, it's part of a big bet that the city of Chicago and really the whole country is making. An investment in former gang members mostly and in a different way to try and address gun violence. We want you to be successful because if you're successful, that means the mission is successful and you're working hard to keep our city safe. Many American cities suffered a spike in gun violence during the pandemic. In 2021, Chicago had more than 800 murders the most in 25 years. Gun violence in America, for those of you who think of this from an economic standpoint listening to me, estimated to cost the nation $280 billion, let me say it again, $280 billion a year. And as some Americans question the ability of police to guarantee public safety, the country is turning to people like Ceci to slow the shooting. Anti-violence workers who live in the neighborhoods who can prevent gang retaliation or help shooting victims heal mentally and emotionally. And there are programs that have demonstrated they can reduce homicides by up to 60% in urban communities. This bet that we're making, it's a bet on empowering and paying people rooted in the communities suffering the most so that they can solve the problem themselves. That is the work that Ceci does, pushing hope, resilience, and peace. From WBEZ Chicago, I'm Patrick Smith. This is Motive, Season 5. Ooh, you smell like gun smoke. You smell it? Sometimes I wish I was with my daughter. You know, sometimes it hurts to be here. Before my children bury me, I have to bury a child. It turns anybody different when they carry that gun. I've been reporting on Chicago anti-violence efforts for years, and the fact is... We still don't know if this approach can make a meaningful dent in shooting numbers. But I have seen the dedication of the people doing this work and the toll it can take on them. Talking to people like Ceci, shadowing them, it's taught me so much about what drives Chicago shootings and what it might take to stop them. That's why this season of Motive, we're going to take you out to the streets to hear directly from the workers, hear their insights firsthand, and get some sense of what the work is really like. Oh my God! Yeah, I used to live close to here. Uh, I don't want to put exactly where, but exactly yeah, but I used to live in this area, and it's very different. So, Ceci patrols the streets of Little Village in her dark blue Chevy SUV. This is the neighborhood where she grew up, where she joined a gang at 13, and where she now spends most of her working hours. Like I said, I lived on this block for many, many years. Um, 
This used to be a bar, they used to call it the Step Down. Little Village is a mostly Latino neighborhood, about six miles southwest of downtown Chicago. It features the city's second busiest shopping district. There's a landmark archway that welcomes visitors to the neighborhood in Spanish. This used to be a good restaurant, too, Concordia. This is a Totonico. That's really good, too, that restaurant. Known affectionately as La Villita, the neighborhood has been dubbed the Mexican capital of the Midwest, and it has the restaurants to prove it. My favorite is Novelion. I was going there since I was a kid. My grandfather would take us there. Yeah. Little Village is also home to long-standing gang rivalries and boundaries. On one corner, we see a young man standing, waiting for the light to change. That young man right there, that's standing there, um, he doesn't look affiliated whatsoever. Somebody from another gang can come and shoot him. So I do have cousins here um, that aren't affiliated in this area, and they moved out because they didn't want to be victims of violence. Sessi serves clients throughout Little Village, mothers who have lost children to gang violence, gang members who are recovering from being shot, bystanders caught in the crossfire. One of her clients is a man in his 40s who we're calling Joey. For reasons that will become obvious, we've changed the names of Joey and his family. We're also going to withhold some identifying details. Joey was shot 11 times while standing just a few feet from his house, an apparent victim of Little Village gang violence. Sessie is trying to help him recover both mentally and physically. She visits him about once a week. During one of her long days out working, Sessie walks up to Joey's single-family home for one of her first visits with him since he got out of the hospital. Joey's just starting the recovery process after the shooting a few weeks ago. Sessie comes in through the back door of the home, where she is immediately greeted by a gaggle of kids gathered in the family's small kitchen. And I'll just, we'll, we'll go back to school. I know that. We're going to try to get you some school supplies. Hello. Hi, how are you? Can you lock the door on the bottom? Yeah, deadbolt? No, the bottom. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Right, it's locked. One of the kids asked me to lock the door behind me. Joey lives here with his partner, the couple's five children, and Joey's elderly parents. The family has mostly not left the house since the incident, except for Joey's partner, who has to leave for her shifts at a fast food restaurant. After checking in on the kids, Sessie walks through the kitchen and into the living room at the front of the house where Joey is watching TV. It's my weekly visit with him, um, checking on him. He missed a doctor's appointment today. I bring him a table that he's been desperately needing. Um, Joey is sitting on a love seat. There's a colostomy bag on his right side. He is shirtless, covered in tattoos and in bandages, each bandage covering an entrance or exit wound. A semicircle of staples runs over his belly, like a frown. Sessie sits down on the couch to his right. Um, as you can see, all the equipment around us, he cannot get up. I mean, he can take a couple of steps. My goal is for him to be up and walking within the next 30 days. I'm following up with doctor's appointments, and he's very, very compliant with doctors. Um, he, he can't do for himself, more or less for his kids right now. So... I mean, I'm going to stick by him and to make sure he's at 100%. I mean, how much how much pain are you in right now? A lot of pain. They damn with a big gun. You got one in, you got at least one in your chest, one in your shoulder. Yeah. 
here, 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 and all in the stomach. What do you need right now the most that you're not getting? Like how do you mean? Like help, support. What kind of support? I just need my medicine where I can be calm. I'm in pain. Like, in a, in a, what time is it? It runs out like 10 20. Like, I got three hours with this medication in my system. And then it runs out and it gives me pain. I didn't know how to go through all this. I ain't do nothing. I ain't do nothing. I was just trying to change. Sessi reminds Joey to drink water and breathe. She keeps an eye on him to make sure he isn't getting too worked up. Since the shooting, Joey's been struggling with anxiety. He calls Sessi at all hours of the night with his mind racing. Joey was shot on the block where he lives. He was standing outside with his elderly neighbor when a car pulled up and someone opened fire. Joey got hit 11 times and was rushed to the hospital in critical condition. His neighbor, who had owned a local business, was killed. A few times while we talk, Joey says his neighbor's real name. We're bleeping that out to help keep Joey and his family anonymous. Joey's telling of the shooting starts off almost painfully innocent. One summer evening, he had gone with his children to a neighbor's house to see their new litter of puppies. Then he went across the street to smoke a cigarette. And I took to come across the street to talk to me because I didn't want to smoke a cigarette with the kids. The, the cigarette smells. So I went across the street and uh, I'm waiting for him standing there. And then when, when, when I look and ready to start to talk to all I heard was the kids screaming. And then I heard he said, ah. And then I started like, when I turned this way, I seen blood coming out of me. And then I and then I seen blood coming out this side. And I was I know blood was coming out here too. And I started feeling like somebody's punching me real hard. This is not Joey's first experience with Little Village gang violence. He's been shot before. And about 20 years ago, a rival gang beat him almost to death, put him in a coma. I left the gang when that happened. I was slow. I'm not the same person. His brain was damaged. His personality changed. I was not like I used to. I don't know nothing. I don't know how to game bang no more. I don't know that stuff. God took that away from me. <laughs> Good. Amen. I don't know how to do that. When I got... I got out of the coma. I was slow. I'm on disability right now. You know? You're going to hear the term gangbanging throughout this podcast. It's a broad term that can mean violence, shootings, beatings. It can also be standing on the corner, holding a block, dealing drugs, or flashing gang signs. Joey says after the beating, he was done with all of it. He's gone so far as to have his gang tattoos removed, renounced his affiliation, which makes his shooting all the more perplexing. Everyone agrees no one was targeting Joey's neighbor. He was old, retired, not involved in anything. I think it was there at the wrong time to be. So then why were they shooting at Joey? Ceci and Joey both vacillate between two possible explanations. 
In one version, even though Joey isn't involved at all anymore, people know that he used to be. They know what part of the neighborhood he's from, and they know his family, which makes him an acceptable target for rival gangs. And the way that the gang life is, I mean, just from my experience, is once you're a gang member, you're always a gang member. Is that true? That's what they say. They say your life is marked forever. You know, no matter you take your tattoos or not. They, they wanted to hit me. The other possibility, they say, is that someone from the other side just decided to drive into rival gang territory where Joey lives and shoot at the first men he saw standing on a block, likely as revenge for a prior shooting. Um, they did it because their friends got hurt. Their friends from that side got hurt, so they look for who they can get from the other side, but they can hurt. Don't matter you change or not, as long as they got somebody who's from that gang. So somebody on the other side got shot, and they just said, we're going to go back to that, to your territory. And try to get somebody from over here. And it doesn't matter, you know, who it is. Yeah. They were looking for somebody to kill. This kind of entrenched gang violence, where people get killed and families upended for almost no reason at all, it's what Ceci is dedicated to fixing. She tries to help Joey make sense of what happened to him, understand it's not his fault, and also tries to help keep him safe after violence hits so close to home. It happened right there. Right there. By the trees, across the street. Do you know who did it? Yeah. Yeah? I'm not going to say names because it's under a investigation right now. Okay. Sorry, I'm just going to say this because I... Okay. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't want to... You're not going to say names because the police yeah. are investigating. Yeah, it's okay. Are you um, cooperating with the police? Yes. Yeah? I want, I, want, I, want, I want the guy in jail. I want justice. He hurt me. I just want the guy to get locked up already. He did that on purpose. But police are moving slowly. Even though Joey says he knows who shot him and told them as much... Police haven't made an arrest, and detectives haven't taken Joey's statement. Joey says they told him he was too impaired by his pain medicine to make an ID right now. They want to wait until he's off the meds, but that could be a long wait. The Chicago Police Department wouldn't discuss the case or the reasons for delaying the identification of the alleged shooter. In the meantime, Joey and his family are paralyzed by fear. This is where he grew up. People know he lives here, and if the gang that did the shooting finds out he's cooperating with police, he could be in even more danger. Oh, you know, um, I want to I want to lock up the guy who did this, and I'm scared to be around because they know me. They know where I live. Considering you know the the fear that you're talking about, yes. how did you decide that you wanted to cooperate? Because that was not right. What he done? I'm a changed man. I know they're gonna try it again. I'm not stupid. They're gonna wait till everything settles. They're gonna grab me one day. Right now, it's really unsafe for him to be here in this location because they know where he resides. So we are trying my best right now. Um, I have a lot of cases, but right now I'm working. And trying to get anything to relocate him. 
While we talk, Joey's 14-year-old son, Mateo, comes into the room and listens to his dad and Ceci. Mateo just finished eighth grade. So he just graduated. I'm very proud. Congratulations. Um, he's Thanks. very, very smart, not affiliated, not involved in any gang that doesn't catch his eye whatsoever. Um, and I think that his dad being a target can put him at risk of being a target as well. And, and I mean, how are you dealing with what, what what's happened to your dad? So right now, through the time I wake up, I'd be like helping him out. Dad, how you feel? Kind of nervous, cause if I like, I'm worried about walking past here, cause I'm, cause as she was saying, like I'm, I'm probably the next target. After about an hour of visiting with Joey, it's time for Ceci to head out. She gives him and Mateo some last-minute tips on tending to his bullet wounds. Remember, when you're doing your wounds, since there's no saving water, we want to make sure, listen, mijo, daddy could use a regular water, open it, make sure it's nobody else is drinking out of it or nobody is touching it, and mommy knows how to do the wound care. There are practical things Ceci is doing for Joey. Okay. Tonight, she's brought him bandages and water bottles, she often pays for them out of her own pocket. She's also helping Joey deal with police, and she arranges transportation to the hospital. But it's also clear her mere presence is a salve to Joey. Everyone else in this house is reeling from the same trauma. Ceci is like an island in the storm, untouched by the roiling waters. Okay, guys, I will see you. I'll see you. Enjoy your ice cream. As we leave, Mateo, the 14-year-old, walks with us out to the backyard. Most 14-year-olds I've met while reporting are not particularly interested in talking with me or being interviewed. But I can feel Mateo's yearning for some sort of activity outside of his nuclear family and the house they're hiding in. He stops at the tall fence, separating his home from the outside world, a border he cannot cross without risking his young life. We step out onto the sidewalk, leaving him behind. Ceci tells him she thinks his dad needs his diaper changed, and she implores him to clean up a little before his mom gets home from work. It's a beautiful, warm summer night in Chicago. Ceci warns Mateo one more time against leaving the property. He says he knows, and he promises he only goes out to get the mail. Then he heads back inside. This is going to be a long summer for Mateo, filled with dangerous and difficult choices. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Hacia, whose Executive Fellows Program provides Black and Latinx business owners with real-world tools and strategies needed to master fundamental management concepts related to company stability and growth. Registrants learn through one-on-one -on -one executive coaching sessions with subject matter experts in the areas of finance, business development, operations, and legal. More info at HACIAWorks.org. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org slash events.
Sessi is sitting at her kitchen table in a cramped, rented house near Chicago's Midway Airport. She's in her signature black leggings and black T-shirt. She holds a cigarette between two fingers. Piles of papers and stacks of folders cover the table and one of the tall chairs next to her. Sessi's children buzz around her. Sitting with her is Jesus Salazar, a big guy with a playful smile who most people call Jesse. Sessi watched Jesse grow up, both of them in the same little village gang. Then about six years ago, Jesse helped pull her out of the gang life, convinced her to join him helping gun violence victims and mediating gang disputes. We were both shot at one time. My hair, I got a, <laughs> my hair was on fire. My sweater caught Wait, what fire. Happened? I got a, like almost a graze wound in the head. So we were doing a mediation between, you know. In-house. In, it was an internal beef that was happening in the community. and. So you say internal like it was the same gang. Same yeah. gang, you know, and they, were, they had previous encounters, violent encounters. And what we were trying to do was stop them from, you know, encountering each other and and displaying violence on each other and unfortunately we were outnumbered that day i mean we got bombarded and uh it was probably 50 or 60 young people out there fighting and we were breaking up the fights and and then right after that the shooting broke out two two people were were shot and you know we were we were in the middle of it i remember when jesse started doing this work and his mom would say i don't know why he's over there the same reaction I got from my mom when I started doing this work. You're crazy. You're going to end up dead. You know, our parents were scared for us, but we felt that we were doing that help. Like, we were put out there to do. Sessie first tried to leave gangbanging after the oldest of her nine children was born. She was out for a while, but then her brother was killed by rival gang members. That trauma of her brother's sudden, violent death and her rage over it pulled her back into the gang life. She says when Jesse would see her out on the street, he would ask about her children, and she would feel ashamed that she was out gangbanging instead of at home, caring for them. I would see Jesse, where's the kids at? Oh, they're at the house, you know, but I'm out here. And when Jesse came and approached me, he approached me quite a few times, and I was like, no, hell no, I don't want that. I'm, I'm out here, I'm on these streets, you know, this is me. <laughs> Um, he says, come on, just try it. And I said, okay, Jesse, part-time. In a couple of months, I'm out of here. He's like, come on, just part-time. I go up the kids. He's like, don't worry, we'll work out your times. You can pick up the kids from school. So that was in November. So February comes around. You're like, hey, I gave you three months. Man, <laughs> do something. And he's like, oh, so we're giving you a full-time position. I'm like, okay, all right. I was so far into the work. As soon as I started, I was so far into it. And here I am. Ceci says now she's driven to provide the kind of help and support that wasn't available to people in her community when she was younger. She imagines a person helping her mom after her brother's death and tries to be that person for grieving mothers now. Living in Little Village... I'm losing a brother, losing a lot of friends in the community. My brother was murdered. I see what my mom went through. I see what a lot of these parents go through. And I would like back then if I knew there was somebody out there to have a, get support for my mom. What help do you wish she had gotten 
I just wish that there was support where she could have got mental health and helped her walk through it instead of me supporting her. Sassy was just 13 years old when she first joined her gang. She was in it off and on for more than two decades. Our females are going to jail for committing crimes because they have to have that, be that big bitch, you know, be the baddest bitch there. And I can relate to that because I've been shot. Um, I've been stabbed. I've been in jail. Who's that? Mommy. That's mommy. (laughs) And what's your name? Angela. Oh, that's a nice name. Mm, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting your your, your play space this here. This is sitting right on the ground. Angelo is Sassy's youngest child. He's sweet and alternates between shy and fascinated by the microphone. Sassy's house is constantly whirring with commotion. Often, Sassy's grandkids are over, staying for a while or just stopping in to eat. Frequently, a cousin or a kid from the neighborhood is sleeping on the couch. Friends and co-workers stop by unannounced all the time. So do the many families of murder victims who Sessie stays in touch with. She maintains no real line between clients and friends, no line between work and life. All around the one-story house are reminders of the incredibly difficult work Sessie has dedicated herself to. If you can see, I got all my prayer cards and my candles, yeah. and it goes on that side and on my walls and... I got some in my desk, and I got some in my bag. Um, So these are other cases that I'm working on right now. um, I work anybody who needs help. I don't care where they're from, what color they are. I don't care. So these are just, uh, these are actually uncle and nephew. You've got here what's essentially like a a spreadsheet, a table, name of parent, name of victim, email, Mm -hmm. picture provided. You're, you're handling so many of these that you have to have a sort of, like, cataloging system. It is. It is, actually. It really is. So how many homicide victims have, have you, you know, families have you worked with? Oh, I can't count. I can't count that high. Just this year you can't count that many? This year, I have them in the computer. I want to say it's been over 30 almost 40 just you have have worked with that I've worked with the scale of loss that Sessie's describing can be difficult to wrap your head around but nearly 40 murder victims in just one neighborhood for just part of a year is astounding it gives a glimpse of the toll Chicago gun violence takes the sheer number of people who are forced to suffer through the unimaginable the number of people who are desperate for help making sense of the senseless the scale feels almost suffocating inside Sessie's house, surrounded by mementos of the dead. Each one not just marking the end of a life, but a violent end. Each mini-memorial proof of a life taken too soon. There's a strange sort of expertise you gain doing the kind of work Sessie does. You learn the process for identifying a body at the morgue. Which cemeteries have the cheapest plots? Which funeral homes will ship a body back to Mexico? And how to save money on funeral costs? Which is where Ceci's manual button maker comes in. She works the button maker on her kitchen table while she talks with Jesse. It makes a loud kathunk as she presses a photo of a long-haired man with big sad eyes into pin after pin. 
She's trying to help a family bring down their funeral expenses. When you walk in a funeral home, they do charge a family member for the prayer cards mm-hmm. um, that are usually given. Um, they're charging for a hundred of them, like maybe a hundred and fifty dollars, a hundred and twenty-five dollars for a hundred. So I use my own ink, I use my own printer, I buy this. Like- the man on the buttons is Rene Castillo. He was killed a few days earlier while walking through the little village neighborhood where he lived with his mom. He wasn't in a gang. No one knows who killed him or why. And he was he was thirty one, right? Thirty one, fighting cancer, and they shot him. How is his family doing? Uh, they're hanging in there. They're really worried about funeral expenses, but they are hanging in there. Ceci is working with Renee's family. She has been since right after the shooting. She sat with his mother and brother in their home as they talked about Renee's life, walked them through arranging the funeral. She's trying to be that support, the shoulder to cry on, the guide to an unknown and terrifying world that her mother didn't have. One of the buttons of Renee will likely stay here, added to Ceci's collection. So would you say you have something from every family you've helped? Yes. Yeah? How do your, considering... The work, you know, you're here at the, the kitchen table, dining room table, uh, doing, you know, making buttons of, of someone who was just murdered. You've got these reminders everywhere. H- how do you talk to your kids? How do your kids think about the, the work that you do? My kids have my back. My kids will go out there. My kids, if there's a homicide and I have to run out of the house to go deal with these family, my kids are behind me, believe it or not. Mom, we're going with you. And I'm like, no. Did it mean that you talked to your kids about death and violence probably more they see than it. more earlier? But they see it. So, so they see I, it. yeah, I guess I wondered if it forces conversations. No, they have. A, we've had a lot of family members that's been passed because of the violence. Um, they see their friends growing up. Um, they know what it is. I feel like, unfortunately, it's it's a part of like, you know. Chicago culture to experience death at a very young age, you know, just through friends, family, um, you know, your classmates, somebody, right? This tragedy will happen to somebody, and you're 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 ex- you're exposed to it at a very young age, yeah. and we normalize it, right? I feel that you know, in order for us to cope and survive, you have to normalize. The fact that, you know, my friend was shot and killed or my uncle was shot and killed or my brother was shot and killed, you know, and it's unfortunate, right, because it happens so often in our community that we're kind of desensitized to it now. That desensitization, it may feel like a necessary part of doing the work Sessie and Jesse do. It may be a reality forced on way too many Chicago children. But living with this much pain and loss takes a toll. And the work leaves a mark on the people who do it. Something I saw during the year I spent with Ceci and other anti-violence workers. This season on Motive, we'll be on the streets in two Chicago neighborhoods, both on the city's west side. Little Village, where Ceci works, and East Garfield Park, where we'll be headed next week. We'll keep tracking Joey's story as he struggles to get the detective in his case to talk with him and make an arrest in the shooting. I heard he's on vacation. I was like, that's cool to take a vacation because you work hard, but what about me, man? We got to get this guy. We'll get to know East Garfield Park and the workers trying to make it safer. You don't want a person like him back on the streets causing mayhem, 
and will follow the fallout from a gang murder of a seven-year-old girl. I will never forget the old man. I want my daughter's killers locked up. Throughout it all, Ceci is going to be riding co-pilot with me. She'll serve as our resident expert, helping make sense of the work, the violence, and the rivalries and allegiances behind all of it. They're going to keep going back. That's their home. That's where they grew up. That's what they knew, like me. That's what I mean about family. Sometimes family ain't blood. That's coming up this season on Motive. A quick disclosure. Almost all of the reporting for this season was done before Ceci came on as our resident expert. I was just a reporter shadowing a subject. But as we wrapped up reporting and began producing this season of Motive, we wanted Ceci's help to shape this podcast. So we hired her as a paid consultant. So you'll be hearing from her in a couple different roles, as a subject, but also as an expert and commentator. Motive is a production of WBEZ Chicago. I'm Patrick Smith. Marie Mendoza is our producer. Our editor is Rob Wildeboer. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Tracy Brown is our chief content officer. Special thanks to Jeff Els for some original music. Our story consultant is Cecilia Mannion. Additional help from Samantha Deer, Jesse Dukes, Natalie Moore, Kay Cahan, Shannon Heffernan, Alden Lowry, and Joe Dassault. Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts.